the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. I'm Jerry Boyer. Welcome to Meeting of Minds podcast. My guest today is Max McLean. Max um, plays C.S. Lewis in the new biopic of C.S. Lewis, The Most Reluctant Convert, The Untold Story of C.S. Lewis. Well, it's not untold anymore. It's told (laughs) very, very well. Uh, This quickly has become one of my favorite films, and I think it will be yours as well. Uh, Max McLean, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Jerry. Looking forward to this. This, um, I, I can't help but approach this uh, uh, as an economist um, in the sense that this is an entrepreneurial, if I, if I understand the story properly, this is an entrepreneurial workaround to the problems created for your core business, which is stage plays, one-man plays, etc., which are not were not really possible during the COVID shutdowns. And so you had a problem that you needed to solve, and this film appears to be the solution. Do I have that right? Is this an entrepreneurship story? Isn't it? That's interesting. We had to pivot, uh, you know, because on March twelfth, two thousand twenty, we had we had uh, three shows on the road. We just and a show in New York that we just closed. Paradise Lost, modern adaptation of Paradise Lost, was playing in New York at Theater Row. We had the Great Divorce, which had just played in Pittsburgh, near, near your hometown and was touring in Houston and, and had a long tour ahead of it. We had the screw tape letters in Colorado Springs. Uh, the Most Reluctant Convert, the stage version of the movie, had just played at Northwestern University and was about to play at the University of Michigan. In the Ann one Harbor. in Seattle? No. Oh, the, uh, the, North, the real Northwestern. Northwestern. Got it. Okay. The one in Chicago, uh, Evanston. I see. Got it. Uh, yeah. Because uh, and, uh, and we were going to play in Ann Arbor. And, and on March 12th, everything shut down. Hmm. And remember, I, do you remember the, the early days of the pandemic, uh, 15 days to flatten the curve? Remember that? I do remember. Yeah. yeah. And I thought, well, what am I going to do for the next two weeks? You know? <laughs> Make it two years now. <laughs> yeah, yes. Exactly. So we were shut down till, since until August of this year. Uh, we're back on tour now, but only since August. And uh, come June... Uh, you know, we we realized, boy, we're, this is going to be long shutdown. So we had to pivot. And one of the things that came out of it, it's kind of a long story, but one of the things that came out of it was, uh, was well, just to go a little bit of the details, uh, Norman Stone, uh, who we've been working on the, the play to make it a film, but we saw it as a 2022, 2023 project. Uh, and in June, Norman said, well, you know, they're going to open up filmmaking in, in August in Britain. And uh, I, if we work quickly, I can get a team together and a cast at very good rates because nobody's worked since March. Hmm. But we have to act quickly. And I said, well, I asked him to confirm that and make sure the locations we needed were available. So, and then I went to my board and says, could we have funding to put this in the can? And then we'll worry about post-production and distribution later. And uh, we, the board approved it. We we got the rights of C.S. Lewis Estate to to do the film version. We had the stage version, uh, 
And uh, on August 31st of 2020, I got on a plane as big as Air Force One with fewer people on it and um, uh, quarantined for two weeks, uh, began our work mid-September, finished mid-October. And uh, now one year later, it's, it's, uh, it's out. How frightening was that? You hadn't done that sort of filmmaking before. I mean, you've done films before. You've got, the, you've, no, got your, you've got your Gospel of Mark, but it's not the same thing. No, that's just recording of the stage recording version. Recording the stage, so, right. Yes. Yeah, you just have a camera follow you around. Uh, this is I a had, much bigger commitment. Yeah, I had a lot of uh, confidence in Norman Stone. You know, he, we've been, uh, he, he did the original BBC version of Shadowlands back in the mid-'80s. And uh, wonderful film. And, and he's got a hundred films behind his belt, did a long, lot, long stint with the BBC, uh, has a couple of BAFTAs, uh, 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 I think an international Emmy. So I had a lot of confidence in, in him and, and he just uh, uh, blew past my confidence. He just, he runs such a great tight ship, but such a pleasant ship and, but very organized uh, in terms of, of uh, cast and crew. Uh, so, I felt like I was in, we were in good hands. Um, we did have to move quickly. Uh, and the quickness probably made me, you know, we had to make some decisions that if we had time, we wouldn't have made. But in terms of, of getting a green lighting a film in, in basically July, finish the filming in October and releasing it the next year, uh, that's almost unheard of. Right, right. Right, and it's a maybe a frightening pace. Um, and when you see the production and there's money being spent, you know, it could have all gone wrong. It didn't. Um, when you came out on November 3rd, um, you, you know, the, the box office receipts were terrific. I think the second highest of any film that, that evening. That night, and, yeah. uh, and actually uh, it's gone, you know, even because we had shows, uh, we had shows on Sunday as well, and then, uh, the, all the major chains are extending it till November 18th. So it's going to do, uh, it's going to do much better than we anticipated. Um, and, and, and highest per screen revenues, which I think is important highest per screen. Yeah, because now you're taking account of the overhead, right? So that's a profitability signal, you know? Well, uh, what it is, is it was, it was a limited release. I think 600 is a wide release, limited releases under 600. We were about 480, I think number of screens, number of theaters, more screens, but number of theaters. And the per screen average uh, was like five times higher than any other film that mm. night. Mm. So we were, we were pleased. Uh, in terms of, you know, recouping expenses, it's going to take a while. You know, uh, right. the way I, I'm learning all this, uh, you know, the movie theaters get most of the money. <laughs> they do. You know, so, and then of course there's all the, and then we're responsible for all the uh, distribution costs and the marketing costs. So, uh, but, uh, you know, we're in it for the long haul. Um, it, uh, filmmaking in Britain is a little less costly, but substantially less costly than it is here. Hmm. Uh, so, uh, so you, you hit the target enough that you're running until the 18th. Is that every night or is that? Well, it, it, beginning November 12th, uh, the theaters are giving us a, a, a I guess, a, an open run meaning three to five showings every day Wonderful. from the 12th to the 18th. So they're giving you a, a full week's run. Normally this is called event cinema, which you get one night, possibly two nights. We, uh, as we were told 
that uh, that is uh, by our distribution company that the big three have never offered this to a a, uh, a, a an event cinema that started as a one night. Yeah, event. I've I've done other interviews with people who've done event cinema, and it stays there. It's its own cinematic niche. It's also itself a wonderful entrepreneurial story, in that there was da- there was there were there was inventory available in the sense of empty theater space. But I've never seen one break out of that and go from the niche to becoming essentially a movie that you can yeah, go to well, see. It, it has it has a, a at least a run till the till the eighteenth. They're giving us a full week's run now. Whether they do anything beyond that, that's really their call, uh, you know. And I suppose if box office is uh, uh, continues, they may extend it. Uh, but they also have to make room for Marvel and <laughs> and Dune and and bond and those things. So uh, I don't have to worry about that. I think they know what they're doing. <laughs> they do. And so that is some competition, although some of those other films, well, I've seen Dune. I haven't seen um, the others, so I can't really opine on theirs. Um, but let me put it this way. I've seen yours twice and I haven't seen, <laughs> I haven't seen bond at all. And I'm a bond fan. So that's uh, telling something, but um, uh, I, I suppose um, this is, to me, this is, um, this is very important personally because Lewis had a huge impact on me. Our, our, my, my wife's next to me here. Our youngest son is named Jack Lewis Boyer. Um, that's, that's the mark that he's left. Um, and I think there are a lot of people out there still who are mm-hmm. highly influenced by C.S. Lewis. He's a big part of their spiritual journey. Um, and this film is really true to him. And not everything that's been about Lewis. I think the BBC Shadowlands was faithful. Um, the, uh, the American Shadowlands, not quite so much. In fact, it sometimes sort of seemed to undermine Lewis, implying that he was you know, emotionally faith, detached yeah. or right, gave up his faith, right, apostatized, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even some of the, the, the um, uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, you know, as the film series went on, it seemed to kind of lose some of that faithfulness to Lewis. This is the most faithful thing to Lewis that I've seen, uh, and you're to be Thank congratulated you. for that. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Lewis has been a bit of a spiritual guide uh, since, uh, uh, you know, I'm an adult convert to Christianity, and, and Lewis, uh, I met him very shortly after my conversion. Uh, the book that really got my attention was The Screw Tape Letters, because it's uh, page one, you know, the first letter, uh, about the man in the British Museum. I don't know if you remember that, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, I said, oh, I know this guy. I know how he works. He's been working on my life for a long time. <laughs> so, it, it, you know, and, and then, you know, Lewis really got my attention because I, I don't think I really understood spiritual warfare. You know, you see pitchforks and you have these visions that are strange. And Lewis brought it down to the, uh, to the greed and spite level, you know, that you live with every day. And uh, and so he's been uh, a spiritual guide for a long time, but I never really saw him as as having theatrical literature. Uh, then a, a theater professor uh, suggested that we do the screw tape letters. He actually suggested that I would make a really good screw tape. I don't know <laughs> if that was a compliment or not, but uh, but I said, you know, uh, he had an idea how to do it. And I says, well, if we can get the rights, we'll have a go. And that was back in the early two thousands and. And I've been living with him with screw tape and the great divorce and now most reluctant convert. Uh, and they're all dealing with uh, spiritual warfare. Lewis always goes back to his conversion. 
in in so much of his so much of his works uh in in the sense of in screw tape it's you know how temptation moves us away from god and and uh in the great divorce is how we resist the holy spirit how we how we fight the the dictates of conscience you know we don't do our duty we don't do what we ought to do and uh and lewis was always counting the costs on both sides and and that made me want to go back to his own memoir, Surprised by Joy, which is the basis of Most Reluctant Convert. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. A book that he wasn't particularly fond of um, com- uh, by comparison, uh, but it certainly seems to have it, – it, I, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit, and it certainly seems to have worked well as the essentially the basis or the structure of your film. Yeah. Yeah. He started writing it. Uh, he, he wrote something called Early Prose Joy almost right after his conversion or maybe even before, because joy has been the guiding light, the thread, you know, this this thing. It's not pleasure. It's not happiness. It's uh, it, it's uh, whoever has it will, you know, will want it again. He says it's it's almost like a it could almost be like grief, except, uh, you know, like he calls it a scent of a flower. You cannot you have not found a echo of a tune you've not heard news from a country you've not yet visited. And it, it's, it drew him, drew him forward uh, hmm. uh, throughout his life, but he, he didn't know what the object of it was. So he was, he, he was looking for the effect, you know, the, 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 the feeling of it, hmm. but uh, he didn't realize it was a, it was a what. Uh, and what he got was uh, footprints on the sand. You know, he didn't see the, uh, or the, you know, uh, he didn't see the reality of it. And then, of course, he he spoke. He didn't about know it was a who. He didn't know it was a who. Right. Yeah. Yes. And he and he said, and one of his greatest, uh, and and I think this is very common amongst all of us, is that he kept looking for false objects. Uh, you know, the sexual longing is the most obviously false. He said, uh, at first, the you know, you you have this image of the perfect lover, but as a lover approaches reality, the longing disappears, <laughs> you know, but he, but he said, there's something that, and he came to the conclusion. He says in a mere Christianity, if I find in myself a desire that no experience in this world could satisfy the most probable explanation is I was made for another world. And that's key to almost all of Lewis's writing is that there is another world and that is where we come from. And the gospel is that God came into our created universe and came out again, pulling us up with it. He said, that's the Christian story. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, everything else he writes is a, 
a, mag- a magnification of that. Yes, and and I I note biographically early on he was writing apologetics works, scholarly work, etc. But at some point he pivoted to use a word uh, your word he pivoted only to the stories. In other words, he wasn't writing the arguments anymore, um, as, as I understand. I, as, 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 no, I think he continued to write the arguments, but it, it, you know he his first thing. Uh, well, he wrote Pilgrim's Regress, which is an allegorical right. uh, uh, story of his conversion in allegorical form. It's kind of hard to read. He says it suffers from two things that that he can't abide in other writers, needless obscurity and an uncharitable temper. Mm. Uh, it's so great that he's so self, uh, you know, he's so self-aware. Uh, but, you know, the, the first major stuff was the, the um out of the silent planet, which is fascinating. Mm. Then, of course, problem of pain was his first attempt at real hard apologetics, uh, and then, of course, screw tape letters and great divorce, and then the hideous strength and those. Then miracles was the second. I think after miracles, he said, I, "I'm not going to do that kind of apologetics." That's what I'm referring to. Yes, yeah. Okay. But he did. If you look at some of the essays he wrote in the '50s and uh, in Present Concerns or, mm. or The World's Last Night, mm. there's some extraordinary apologetic arguments there, but they're just in shorter form. I see. So yeah. no, no full-length apologetics book. Yeah. And um, Till We Have Faces, that was his last full-length book. Is that correct? Well, uh, no, it, uh, it was his last, uh, I think, novel. He he wrote Grief Observed after that, and he wrote oh, yes. letters He wrote letters to Malcolm after that, which is really quite wonderful. Uh-huh. Yeah. He, he said he'd been trying to write a book on prayer uh, because prayer was also early in his life. He left, a, he left the faith because he said he, he had these – you know, he was taught that uh, when you pray, you should be thinking about what you're praying. You should believe uh, it. And if you it, believe well, it, it was be saying, he was also saying, you were, you know, like if you're praying for, if I'm praying for Jerry Boyer, yes. I should be thinking about Jerry Boyer. I should have pleasant thoughts about Jerry Boyer. I see. I fully endorse all of that. <laughs> praying and, for and Jerry he said, Boyer. But he, I mean, he, said, he said that the false conscience, which is really interesting, which is Paul's law. He says that would, which is actually a kind of a metaphor for screw tape, would would ask him uh, after he finished praying, "Did you really pray for Jerry thoughtfully, and or did you pray for Jerry as well as you did last night or the night before?" And he said the answer was always no. Hmm. And so the voice would say, "Well, shouldn't you have another go of it?" And he said it was like he he put this. This is what actually drew him out of his faith, is that he 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 put this. No prayer would pass muster unless it had a certain level of what he called realization, which which was a uh, a, a sense of affection or or imagination. And he said, in other words, he was trying to do with willpower something that willpower could never do. And he said it was just he would be dizzy with sleep trying to puff pump up his realizations he said it be, you know it was driving him he said if it took it much longer he would have been a chronic insomniac would have drove him mad this was in his teens and he said that gave him the unconscious desire to uh want to throw off his faith and then of course he found intellectual reasons to do it but i found that to be fascinating hmm. there, there there is something in his spiritual writing where he looks at these kind of recursive loops that we fall into 
am I, am I being fully realized by being fully authentic? Um, I'm examining myself as I'm thinking. And at the moment I'm examining myself, I'm not really thinking anymore. And at the moment that I feel humble, at that moment I'm prideful. Um, so he seems to be drawn to some of the paradoxes of a religion that demands a certain emotional state um, that cannot actually be produced. And that the attempt to fulfill that demand, whether it's authenticity or humility or whatever, must always fail. Um, and therefore, the whole thing is futility. And That's so interesting. I've not heard anybody else talk about that because I, I, uh, I, I've kind of struggled with, with that. He said, in order to get, uh, is to overcome a lust, he says, is to, is to uh, objectify it or to become overcome an anger if you're feeling angry uh you know there's there's something there's what do you call it? contemplation and uh, i can't remember what the other one was but he says you can go back and forth of these things and in, in order to uh but you can pull out of something so if you're in a a state of sin uh there's a technical way of pulling yourself out of it mm-hmm. and and i think he's right you know like if you say a prayer you know, if you're lusting, for instance, and you say the Lord's Prayer, that'll take you right out of it. Right, right. But if you're lusting and you turn inward towards introspection and try to expel lust um, or conquer it, that doesn't work. That adds energy to it. I think that's yeah. part of his point, that that introspection, and and um, I think it's Luther, and you've done a play about Luther as well, uh, talks about incurvatus se, the soul turned in on itself. Um, and that seems, whether Lewis is getting that from Luther or not, that seems to be a very consistent theme of his, that you're pointing, uh, you're pointing towards the way the soul turns in on itself. A lot of the great divorce is that. You know, you look inside and you see the grumble and eventually there's nothing left but the grumble. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. turning outward, even when you don't feel it, praying even when you don't feel it, putting on a mask, um, even when you don't have the right shaped face, um, is what it's the way to be conformed to his image. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. In fact, he, he, he talks about this is why children play. Mm-hmm. You know, this is how they grow is they 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 imagine themselves in this other body in this other being and that's that's a, a very important part so they get out of themselves uh, I'm they sorry, get out of themselves that's that's so true uh yeah i mean you know the the interesting thing that we're having these conversations because it's lewis is a bottomless well mm-hmm. i find that you you simply don't get to the bottom of him uh, and any rewards, uh, you know, that's, I guess that's one of the reasons why I keep going back to him. Hmm. Yeah. I've, I've found over and over again, I've just, I've looked into Lewis and I thought of him as an introduction to Christianity as a popularizer, not in a, in a pejorative way, not writing him off. That's just the function that I saw him perform. And then you'll see something in, in in the, um, in Narnia where, um, you know the, how the how the white witch acts, uh, and it's, it's like wow, there's really deep theological and biblical knowledge here. There, there really is, uh, and 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 you know the the interesting thing that I find is he read everything from the Greeks to the moderns. He had a steel trap mind that could remember everything he read, and then he had this 
extraordinary ability to translate it into magnificent prose and speech. And, and he was able to articulate that through a very clear Christian worldview. Uh, Walter Hooper said he was the most thoroughly converted man he'd ever met. Mm. And that comes through like when you see something like in a children's story, there was something I read recently about, uh, uh, I can't remember the, uh, it was in, uh, I think it was in the silver chair and uh, the little girl meets the lion. She's very thirsty. And she said, and she asked, could I drink? And she goes, and the lion says, yeah, Aslan says, yes. It says, but she's afraid of lions. I says, will you go over there while I, you know, it says, no, I'll, I'll say, so you eat girls? I says, I eat girls, boys, kings, emperors. Empires, and yeah. 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 And, and then the final thing, it says, uh, uh, will you go away while I, and she goes, and, and he says, he doesn't move. And, and then she says, uh, and she's dying of thirst and says, I, I guess I'll have to find another stream. Hmm. And Aslan says, there is no other stream. You know, and it's so clear. There is no other stream. You know, you're dying of thirst. You want the truth. You want joy. You want it. I'll go find it someplace else. Hmm. Kind of Pharaoh's magicians. They can imitate it, but they can't come to it. It's kind of a beautiful retelling of the Samaritan woman in some ways, isn't it? Yes. 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 I hadn't thought about that, but that's exactly what it is. That's what I mean about how how much he's in. He he didn't write any Bible commentaries, but he he wrote he, a he, he marvelous absorbed, book called. Uh, oh, he you, wrote he wrote a book, he wrote a book about Psalms, but I mean like a yeah. commentary commentary. Um, but he he absorbed the Bible and deeply internalized it. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. No, that was it. The, 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 he did internalize it, uh, like you know, uh, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. You know, he says that's the God. That's it right there. It's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So it's work out. It's our responsibility. It's God who works in you. you know, I mean, I got that from Lewis. Hmm. You know, he saw both sides of that. You know, that's that's the Christian life right there. So we're talking about Lewis's words. Your film, your biopic, is almost entirely his words. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. The opening scene comes from the first, first pages of The Problem of Pain when Lewis is articulating his uh, his mature atheism, either there's no God behind the universe, a God indifferent to good and evil, or worse, an evil God. Uh, and then uh, we learn biographically, uh, a lot of it's surprised by joy, probably 85% of it's from surprised by joy, but uh, a lot of letters, etc., that uh, would talk about uh, his, you know, he lost his mother to cancer, which is very clearly written in surprised by joy. Uh, he prayed and she didn't come back. And so he thought prayer didn't work. Uh, had a terrible relationship with his father. Uh, that is very clear and surprised by joy. And he had, you know, he experienced the butchery of, of the Great War. And uh, this, you know, this led to his pessimism, this pretty dark view of the world. Uh, but through the influence of friends like Owen Barfield and later on J.A.R. Tolkien, he, uh, he, he, he's that that's challenged. Uh, and one way like Barfield challenged him with the, you know, the idea of, of, of materialism, you know, if, uh, uh, is logic and reason bring forth indisputable truth? He says, yes, of course it does. 
Are your moral aesthetic judgments valid, meaningful? Yes, of course. And he says, well, materialism has to be abandoned. You know, you can't you can't have those thoughts because otherwise it's just atoms colliding in skulls. It's physics and biochemistry. Yes. And he said, and he said that had simply not. He said he was he said he thought he was blind as a bat. He hadn't seen that before. <laughs> and uh, and that said that came to the that made him come to the conclusion that that all uh, rock bottom reality must be mind. Had to be intelligent. Yes, right. Yeah, right. had to be intelligent. Right. And then, you know, and, and famously, he says that my my argument against God was that the universe is so cruel and unjust. But where had I got this notion of cruel and unjust? I call a line crooked because I have some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing the universe with when I called it cruel and unjust? Uh, and, you know, when you hear that, you go, okay. Uh, and then, of course, the the relationship he had with Tolkien, you know, Tolkien, I think was the one that really made him uh, go to scripture hmm. because uh, both he and Tolkien were, were great uh, mythologists, I suppose, in terms of studying mythology and a new mythology at a very, very deep level. And, uh, and, you know, uh, Lewis famously became a theist before he became a Christian. Now we think of a theist sort of like, almost like a, a, you know, sort of a a nominal person, but that's not how Lewis saw. Lewis said, my religion was like that of the Jews. You know, he believed that, that God was real and that he owed God his allegiance. Hmm. Uh, uh, You know, like he's standing before the burning bush. Right. Uh, You know, that. So we, we shouldn't think deist. I think no, we theist. might. We, right, I understand that, but yeah. like the point I think you're making is that people have a to whom you uh, who to whom it may concern God, right? Um, yeah, the God of, of the philosophers, theism, and, right? and he went through that stage, right? But then he, you know, he when he said that very famous line, uh, "I gave in," it admitted that God was God, knelt and prayed. Perhaps the most dejected, reluctant convert in all England was to. He said that was. The God to whom I surrendered was not human. I knew nothing of the incarnation. Uh, but Tolkien was the one that got him over the uh, the over the hump there. Well, and the idea of the myth come true, the and, myth and, came and, true. And, and and the myth as an echo of reality. In exactly. other words, the, the the similarity of Christianity to myth is not an argument against Christianity. Um, it is the most powerful one of the most powerful arguments for it. Um, in that you have an actual historical event that corresponds with all of the best mythological, all all of the best of all of the mythological stories. Yeah, and that was, and of course, it was it was certainly important to Lewis because Tolkien's argument, in essence, was when you know he knew he he loved myth, and not only he loved them, he felt them. You know, and that's what you know why most successful movies are are retelling of mythological stories. Yes. Uh, so they still touch us at a very deep level. But he said, Tolkien said, when you meet a God, well, Tolkien, uh, Lewis said to him, I simply can't understand how the life and death of someone else, whoever he was 2000 years ago could help us here and now. Hmm. He said, he did that. I don't get, I get God. I don't get Jesus. And so that's when Tolkien said, when you meet a God sacrificing himself in a pagan story, Dionysus, Boulder, Osiris. Right. Right. Uh, 
You like it very much. Right. Baldur the Great has fallen. This. Didn't he say that that's maybe the most beautiful sentence in all of literature? That uh, was that was the the his first uh, encounter with uh, with joy. With joy, right? Yeah. Yes. Baldur the Great is dead. Is, is dead. dead. Is dead. Yeah. Is dead. Yes. Right. And that right. was. That I'm confusing was... that with Pan the Great God is fallen, which is. It, a, but it's the same story. It's the same, right? Yeah, it is. Right. It's right. a. It's a. But all these stories are are progressively revealed throughout. You know, so like his to him, you know, that was religion in its infancy. Where had it grown up? Mm. And uh, and of course, uh, he said, you like it very much and are mysteriously moved by it, provided you meet it anywhere except in the gospel. Yes. He says, and then he says what you just said. The story of Christ is a myth working on us. I mean, working on us emotionally, intellectually, imaginatively, uh, working on us in the same way as other myths with one tremendous difference. It really happened. It really happened. Mm. And then this wind blows, <laughs> which is <laughs> the wind blows in the, you know, the wind this blows is weather, weather soever it will. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that was, and that was what that got Lewis to read the gospels differently. And mm. so he saw Jesus as a hero story. And so, you know, and then ultimately his whole apologetic became if Jesus, you know, uh, if Jesus' statements are false, Christianity is of no importance. If true, it's of infinite importance. One thing it can't be is moderately important. Hmm. Hmm. And uh, he, you know, he he said it all hinges on Jesus. Is he who he says he is? And he came up with the liar, lunatic, Lord analogy, which he got from Chesterton. But uh, I, I think ultimately, you know, he he read the Gospels so deeply that he could say, who is this man? And that's the question we all have to ask ourselves ultimately. Hmm. Who is this man? Hmm. Hmm. Well, you know, there's there's the film of the life of Jesus, the greatest story ever told, and, and I think that's a good description, but in some sense, it's the only story ever told. That's right. Every story that's worth the name story is in some ways a telling of that story. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And and we're we're in an age where we're in, in essence addicted to story. We binge watch, you know, uh, etc. Uh, we're addicted to the stories of politics. We're addicted to the stories of the Marvel universe, which is basically just mythology. And then along comes Lewis again, who you know died in the early 1960s. But we're not moving away from him. We're moving towards him because he has he he anticipated what we're moving towards now. All of the things that he saw that he laid out as abstract arguments, you know, the idea that if we're just atoms in, in motion, et cetera, then our judgments can have no value. We are now moving sociologically, politically, culturally to that world where we act as though we're just atoms in collision and therefore yeah, our judgments yeah. have no and, value. And that's why he's I, out I, ahead I, of us is what yeah, I'm saying. Yeah, he is. And, and, and in many ways, he, he, he's kind of a bridge back or, you know, whether back is the right word, but toward uh objective moral reality and and the reality of 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 the uh of the incarnation hmm. because that's the central myth that's the grand myth that's that's the the grand miracle and uh, uh and what's interesting is is as i find uh, that you know, with our the education that we're getting nowadays, I mean, from childhood on, that it's really hard for us to think of 
of, you know, it's all about follow your desires because it really doesn't matter. Everything is socially constructed. And, uh, and L- Lewis, when you, when I said earlier about you didn't get to, he's a bottomless well, you don't get to the bottom of him. He just alters that perspective. You know, if you read him, you start thinking of, you know, uh, that God has set eternity in our hearts, that we were made a little lower than the angels. And we start to feel that. Mm. And, uh, we're, that's the, we're that's the weight of, of glory. Yes, we're drawn to uh, to this higher reality, further up, further in. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I mean, ultimately, it leads to you know the 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 subjective view that we're all socially constructed. You know what we're? It's all a matter of fear of death. We're all afraid of dying. That's why you know uh, people can be controlled. You know, we make so many decisions so we can have six more weeks of life uh, because we don't believe we live forever. Hmm. And, uh, and and Lewis is so big on, you know, there are no ordinary people. We've never met a mere mortal. Uh, and we uh, Lewis helps remind us of all of that. And, and we need to be reminded of that. And that um, passage, by the way, is also in your in your film in the biopic mm-hmm. um, of the most reluctant convert. If people want to know more about that film, where to find it, um, uh, C.S. Lewis movie, www.cslewismovie.org. Oh, is it dot com? Uh, Sorry, dot com. C.S. Lewis movie dot com. And so, um, um, and it's in theaters. Go see it. Go take people with, don't don't go to this alone. Take people, take your kids. There's so little entertainment out there that is ennobling that when you have something like this, just, Grab it, you know. Thank you, Jerry. Just Thank grab you. it. We need it. It's. it's yeah. uh, um, we developed, uh, by the way, just if people are interested, we we've developed a, a wonderful discussion guide. Devin Brown, a, a C.S. Lewis biographer and scholar, did it for us. Did a fabulous job, and that's on the C.S. Lewis Movie website. We also make the script of the stage play available, which the it's very close to the film. Hmm. So if people want to go further up, further in, they have opportunities. Further up and further in. So <laughs> and so you're back on the road soon. Is that right? You're going to be doing? Well, we, we, Great Divorce is still on the road. Uh, oh, it is. We okay, have good. A, we, uh, we have a show in Indianapolis, uh, uh, and uh, I think Indianapolis, St. Louis, and Cleveland are the, the three we have coming up. Uh, Most Reluctant Convert will go back on the road in, in uh, January, February. I have a show at University of Florida, University of Michigan. Uh, and then uh, I'm going to begin a new show in March. Uh, we're developing a new show called Further Up, Further In. Oh. And uh, the, per- the, 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 the that show is when Lewis was converted, he was 32 years old. Uh, it wasn't obvious he was going to become the person he became. You know, many people get converted, don't become C.S. Lewis. Uh, so uh, what this script will attempt to do is follow that journey of how he became what he became, uh, and I'm I'm very I've just really enjoyed the research on that. Almost picking up where this where this one um, where, 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 right. this, where the reluctant convert leaves off with it, right, large, right. basically with his conversion, right? Yeah, his this the, this show begins with the death of his mother essentially uh, when he was nine years old uh, through his childhood, through his war experiences, through his his uh, uh, friendships at Oxford through his, uh, he was a fellow at Oxford uh, till 1931. And it was a long conversion too. I I would say that from atheism to uh, 
probably close to, he called it idealism, but it was probably a kind of deism, was a few years. Then he went to theism, which is, you know, going from the God of the philosophers to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is very interesting to me, really interesting, because he called it, he said, my training was like that of the Jews. Um, And then, uh, but he took it so seriously. Uh, But he didn't go to synagogue. He went to church, even though he didn't believe in Christ. He went to church. He said he felt like he had to, quote, fly his flag. Fly his flag. Yes, right. (laughs) (laughs) And and then uh, and then, of course, his conversion to Christianity. And along the way, he, you know, he got rid of materialism completely. He said the materialist point of view, I can't believe that. He said that there's only three choices. There's the materialist view, which you can't believe. Uh, archaic pagan religions, which aren't moral enough, and then the fulfillment of the moral and the mystery in either Hinduism, uh, Judaism, or Christianity. And he makes a really interesting statement about Judaism. He says Judaism was, uh, he got this from uh, uh, Rudolf Otto. Uh, uh, the idea of the holy? That one, yeah, that's right. Where he said only the Jews brought together uh, the, 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 the mystery that haunts with the morality that binds. Hmm. And they did that at Mount Sinai hmm. where uh, the, the righteous Lord who the thunder and lightning of Mount Sinai, the righteous Lord who loveth righteousness. He says that the Jews brought the two together. Hmm. Uh, the, and then the, the of course, numinous, I think he calls the, the numinous right. and the moral. Right. Uh, and you know, that's a, that's a, According to Lewis, and I guess according to Otto, that was a revelation, a new idea, hmm. because religion begins with the haunting, you know, the mystery. You're not alone. There's fear, but it's not the same fear as a tiger in the room. It's uh, it's a it's like an uncanny fear, like a ghost is in the room. Hmm. But you but it doesn't have any moral demands on you. It's just you're afraid of it. And what the Jews did was bring the two together. And then, of course, then you got this the, this man who claimed to be the son of that, which is the uh, bringer of the moral law and the awful presence atop Mount Sinai. Hmm. And he says, we take the claim so lightly. <laughs> I guess Joy yeah. Davidman wrote about that, didn't she? Is it fire? I guess Smoke on the Mountain. Smoke right? on the Mountain, that's it. Yes. Right? Yes. I wonder how yeah. much that is from her. And that was from Problem of Pain. And uh, I mean, I, that's where I got it from Problem of Pain. The, it's a, the, 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 that book is, is uh, it's a little, it feels a little self-conscious, but it's an amazing book in terms of the writing of it. He, he feels like he's not uh, up to the task, uh, but I think it's an amazing book. And his chapter on heaven is extraordinary at the end. Hmm. So uh, you're, you're considering other movies now, aren't you? You're well, I think movies are in our future. Yes. Movies are in our future. Yes. Um, uh, maybe not always on Lewis, but certainly our, uh, the mission of Fellowship for Performing Arts is we produce theater from a Christian worldview meant to engage a diverse audience. And now we have to say we have to change the mission. We produce theater and film <laughs> a Christian worldview <laughs> to uh, and it's it's really the worldview is so important. Uh you know, because I, I do feel like there's a clarity in the worldview that art, imagination, theater uh, can uh, explore in a way that, you know, we can say things in a, in a theatrical experience, in a film experience that, that uh, uh, other people can't say in the same way about God, about the devil, about Jesus Christ. Uh, 
in, in that setting because it's in the confines of an imaginative experience. Mm-hmm. Now, Lewis. Uh, that's how uh, you sneak past the, what is it? Watchful, the, uh, steal the past watchful, watchful dragons. dragons. Yes, what a great exactly. Yes. Yeah. Because what Lewis says is that the imagination is the organ of meaning. Reason is the organ of truth. And what he meant by that is the imagination serves up the raw material of what we think about. Hmm. And, and uh, you know, if an idea doesn't capture the imagination, doesn't engage the imagination, then you're not going to do the hard work required to really uh, affect change, affect uh, reevaluation. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I think the most reluctant convert does that very well. Um, uh, and uh, I want to thank you for it. By the way, one thing that occurs to me, just the, the structure, it, it starts outside the story, yeah. right? It starts with you. In other words, it's self-aware. It's meta, yeah. as they say nowadays. Um, and then we start the film. And then you are the middle-aged Lewis going back and narrating his life, almost like Scrooge. It is, um, yeah. Except you, this is Lewis after his enlightenment, um, who's going who's back? Ex- going back, whereas Scrooge is pre-enlightenment, you know, and learning from his past. Um, yeah. So that there's a story within a story, and then it zooms back out again—a story within a story within a story—which makes sense because one of the major points that Lewis makes, and you explicate, is that the author wrote himself into the into story, the play. Into yeah, the play, if yes. Hamlet and Shakespeare could ever meet, it would have to be Hamlet. Uh, Shakespeare's doing. Yes, yes. Right. And, and, and the structure of um, the most reluctant convert sort of captures that in some ways. Um, and you might not, and people reading it, if, if they're not into like narrative structure, you, just watch, watch the film. You'll get, you'll get a feeling of yeah. being out, of being zoomed out at some point with a God's eye point of view. Um, so, all right, I've, you, I've taken more time than you offered, than you agreed to. Is there anything else you want to say to us before we let you go? No, other than that, I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's just felt like that, you know, two people that really like what they do and and have an opportunity to just talk freely about it. I really appreciated it, Jerry. Thanks very, thanks very much. And we have a friend in common, Amen. Uh, Jack Lewis. Yeah. All right, Max McLean's been with us. Um, again, cslewismovie.com. Go get your tickets or go to the movie theater. Take someone with you. Max McLean, thanks for being on Meeting of the Minds. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts and improve our national conversation by sharing it with some friends. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.